I, I will fight so much harder for my sister than I will for myself. And I've had to also teach myself, take care of yourself the way that you would for Edna. If Edna was in this situation, what would you do? This is Jessica Pate, your host for Brave Together podcast. I am here to serve, encourage, and inspire you in your journey as a special needs mom. This is your tribe. This is your community, your place to be reminded that you are not alone. Follow along as I share stories, inspiration, and resources just for you. Hi, friends. Welcome to Brave Together podcast today. This is Jessica Pate, your host, and I'm so excited about our guest today, Jeannie Bergen. I first heard about Jeannie a few years ago because there is an organization that I support and actually in turn supports We Are Brave Together now, and it's called the Special Children's League, and Jeannie was their keynote speaker one year, and it was the year that I missed. I think I was sick, and everyone said, Jessica, oh my gosh, you missed such a great speaker. You need to meet Jeannie Bergen, and so... I finally got in touch with her and we connected and I think probably We Are Brave Together had been launched by the time we we did connect and talk and email back and forth and I thank you so much for being a part of We Are Brave and sharing your story and I'm excited for our listeners today to hear your story and so I'm just going to have you just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, thank you so much. And, you know, was, when I joined We Are Brave Together and went to my first support group meeting, I had been trying to find a support group for a long time. And it was so, I, I'll never forget one mother speaking about the experience of what it was like to watch her daughter have a seizure. And she talked about the fear. And, I, you know, I for my whole entire life, like at that point, you know, that was a few years ago. So I was, what, 32? And I had been watching my sister have seizures my whole life. And, and when she described, like, I just want it to end, it spoke to my heart. It spoke to my experience. But to wait that long in your life, and obviously some people wait much longer to hear a similar experience um, and hear the truth of the horror of what it's like to witness someone have a seizure, someone that you love and to be able to do nothing. The fact that you and the other moms and parents who've created a space for that is, is life-changing. And I just applaud you and thank you for it. And thank you for welcoming me. <laughs> I have been my sister's guardian since I was 20. I'm 35 now, so 15 years ago, which I think about that and I'm like, oh my God. Um, Can we just pause? I want our listeners to hear that. Yeah. Once again, you were 20. Yes. When you became your sister's guardian and caretaker. Mm -hmm. When I was four, I'm my sister's, I'm younger than Edna. Her name's Edna May. She was named after my grandmother and I was named after my mom's sister. And, um, my mother died of breast cancer when she was 34 years old. And my dad, when she got sick, left the situation. So left the situation, I say situation, left the family <laughs> and um, was not a part of our lives. And so we were raised by our grandmother and our aunt. And um, Edna has a you know, it's interesting for, I'm trying to change my language around the way that I describe my sister, because I feel like for so much of my life, I've described her firstly as Edna is disabled. 
Hmm. And Edna had this. And I know I'm trying to get out of the habit of doing that. So first I want to say Edna loves Winnie the Pooh, as I do. And she is so sweet when her medications are not causing havoc on her life. She is the kind, like, she's just so sweet. She, you know, just the way that she loves me is a way, and the way that I love her is a way, a certain love that I've never experienced before. And it's just, it's love and it's unconditional. And even though she gets on my nerves um, sometimes, especially when we were living together, uh, you know, but I think that's to be expected with siblings. Um, You know, she's the love of my life and she hasn't always been. I've often despised her and resented her and been embarrassed by her because um, she was different than my friends and she was different than other people. Um, all of that said, she was diagnosed with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which LGS, and she started having seizures when she was a baby. Um, and so then she had grand mal seizures and that eventually um, took her speech and took, you know, a lot of her abilities away from her. Um, so she is a year older than I am. I'm turning 36 on June 10th. So she just turned 37 on May 28th. And so, um, you know, her speech is, she says, Jeannie, that is one of her words that she says is Jeannie. And um, she says, I got it. I love her more than anything. She's still a pain in the ass. I think one thing too, is like when people talk about disabled people, it's like, oh, there, there are people with disabilities. That's another term too. My sister's, you know, has a disability my whole life. And I'm just learning, do not refer to people as the disabled people with disabilities, you know? So, and that's another thing. I think it's okay to like, to be not, sorry, I say like a lot. So I just have to apologize. It's okay. So do I. (laughs) But to be open to changing and to seeing, even if you don't agree with it, seeing how language could potentially hurt someone else and how that wouldn't sound right to some person. Even if you don't feel that way, just do it because it's respectful of other people. Anyway, now I'm on my soapbox. And then I, we're I like it. Okay. I like it. Educate us. Educate our listeners. We do need to be sensitive, respectful in how we talk about our children or our friends' children and, you know, syndromes and disorders and diagnoses and labels appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're in it. You, you know, you have a different situation and everyone's situation is different. I, I remember hearing a phrase, um, if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. I think it's the same. If you know one person with a disability, you know one person. Like that person is an individual. Like everyone's going to be different. Um, but I say that because Edna, I think there's a delicate, like people want to be delicate or you don't know what to say. And it's like, no, my sister's a human being. <laughs> like she's not perfect. She's not, you know, she still has, she's very stubborn. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> My grandmother then, she passed away when I was 20. And my aunt and I became co-guardians of my sister. Um, And I was in college at the time. And there was a circumstance with my aunt where she was unable to really care for Edna full-time alone. And I petitioned the state to be Edna's sole guardian. And at that time I was living in a college dorm in a shared room and 
I had to take my sister one night and I was, my Edna came to the dorm room and stayed with me. And I mean, we had nowhere else to go. And, but I felt that that I was doing what was best for her. And I, I was doing what was best for her, but I remember like she was clapping and she claps a lot and she was yelling because she was, you know, confused. She didn't know where she was or why she was there, except that she was with me and my roommate. I just remember my room. I don't think she'd ever been around anyone who was disabled before. Um, and she was just like staring at me and she's like, you know what? I'm going to go to my boyfriend's. You and Edna can have the dorm. And Edna stayed with me in the dorm, I think, for a week. And then, you know, she eventually, for a short term, went back to stay with my aunt. But then it was very clear that that was impossible for her to live there. And so I got full the full guardianship of Edna. Um, Can we go back again? So yeah. I'm just trying to imagine. So my son Luke is 19. Mm-hmm. Just finished his freshman year of college. He'll mm-hmm. be 20 in November. So I, I'm just imagining... Edna in your dorm room, you're 20 years old, you're having your own life and you were probably so mature and responsible for 20 having grown up with Edna, but here you are in your own life. Probably I'm I'm guessing she was always still on your mind in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's in your college life Mm -hmm. and you are you emailing professors saying, I'm unavailable, I'm not going to make it to class, or I will do my best? Because if she was with you, ended up being with you for a week, I'm just imagining what it would be like for Luke, because he probably wouldn't take Ryan to class with him. Right, right. It might be holed up a little bit except for food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from what I can remember, I did not, certainly did not take Edna to class with me. I you know, and it was around the time that my grandmother had died. And I remember telling one professor specifically, my grandmother has died. I'm dealing with a family emergency, but I think he, I didn't give the specifics. I didn't say my mom died when I was four. My dad left. My grandma raised us. My grandmother is, has been my mother. I think when people hear, oh, my grandma died, especially in college, it's like, oh, it's an excuse or, well, that's your grandma. It's also interesting the way that people determine what the death of another should mean to someone else when they have no idea what that would mean. Um, so I do remember emailing a professor and him not giving a shit. I don't know if I can say that, but that's okay. That's his, his attitude. Um, and I remember my aunt's friends, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be respectful of her because my aunt has had her own struggles. And so I don't, I've, I've often said a lot, you know, I I've come to understand my aunt a little bit more that she was in a lot of pain from having lost her, her sister from having raised the two of us. Um, you know, and so, but there were people who were aware of her situation and aware that she could not take care of Edna and, um, they were helping me. And so, you know, I, it's hard because I don't necessarily remember the details and I don't really think I thought about what I was doing that much other than it was what I had to do. And I had to just get her in the car. I had to take her to where I had a roof over our heads. I remember walking her down the hall to, t- to give her a shower in the, in the, you know, the shared shower room. And Edna, you know, she's loud. She just, you know, she'll scream poo or, you know, for no reason. And cause she wants to watch poo. Um, and just the feeling of, of being like embarrassed or what if someone says something or she can't, can't be here long term, you know, but it's just, 
I had to give her a shower. So that's what I had to do. So obviously that wasn't like a long-term solution. And sure. that's why she did, did eventually go back with my aunt for a short period of time because she was like, Oh, I can do this. I promise I'll take care of her. But you know, she just wasn't capable of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was before I could even like legally drink and it's just the, the weight of that is a lot. And, but people in high school, like I remember I had another roommate who, when she was 16, she was working a job at McDonald's to support her family because her mom was a drug addict. So, I mean, there are a lot of people in these types of situations that don't talk about it. And because there's a lot of shame around it, um, cut to a few years after that, I got married and my husband and I took care of her, but I also got married really young. And I thought that by getting married and having someone that would be, I wouldn't be alone in it anymore. And he was not the right person for me. And so, yeah, I mean, I was just so, I mean, I met a 20 year old at some support group or something and I was just staring at her like, oh my God, you're 20. That's how old I was when I said, yes, I'm going to take on my sister. And I, I didn't like, I have a, I don't really understand age. I feel like, because I did have to grow up so fast and I did have to make these very mature decisions when I was still figuring things out and I'm still figuring things out. So yes, I was very young and I was an intern at a local news station. And I remember walking into the editor's bay with an editor that I worked very closely with. And I said, after I got won the guardianship of my sister, because I had to go before the judge and I had to, you know, I can't even imagine what that judge thought of me just standing there. I'm, you know, I was so young. Um, and telling the editor, I told him I got, I got guardianship. I, I won guardianship. And he just looked at me and he was like, okay. Like, I don't think he knew what to say. And I also think he was probably looking at me like, oh my God, you have no idea what you're taking on. And, you know, because I really, I really did it because <clears throat> signing on to become someone's guardian, just like having a child, you are responsible for them, you know, for the rest of their life, especially when they have disabilities. It's, Edna didn't leave the house at 18 and go to college and get a job and she'll never have a job. And I signed on to t- be her guardian for the rest of my life. Like I imagine us in a nursing home together when we're like in our 80s. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a lifelong endeavor, but you can't think about that. It's like, I wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking about what do I do to keep my sister safe and secure her life? You know, that's what I was thinking about. I wasn't thinking about 10 years ahead. I hope that, <laughs> I I just, it, it just reminds me of, I'm sure you've gotten this question as special needs mother, get the question, how did you do it? And how do you do it? You just do because you love. Mm-hmm. And of course you're going to rise up and do the best that you can with the knowledge that you have and the resources that you have to take care of her. But still, I mean, I applaud you. I applaud you that you didn't just make her a ward of the state and say, I'm too young. I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I'm going to go live my life. Like it makes, it gets me choked up your love for Edna. I you know, when you were speaking earlier, like she's the love of my life. I mean, I could ball. I just, it's so beautiful, Jeannie. And it's so evident, you know, I follow you on social media and we've had our own, you know, interactions, but it's so apparent and genuine and beautiful. Thank you. I think, you know, I I had someone, a friend's mom say to me one time, he was like, you must have been loved a lot when you were little because of the way that you love Edna. 
And for so long, I've been so angry at my grandmother and my aunts. You know, I learned how to mix drinks when I was seven years old. Like I was like mixing cocktails because I wanted to help my grandmother. And I look back on that. I'm like, oh, that's not, that's okay. (laughs) You're not supposed to have your children. (laughs) Yeah. But I had no idea. Like you don't know what's normal because you're inside this home with people who are doing God knows what. Anyway. I was loved. I mean, my grandmother could have put us in a home, put both Edna and I, she could have put us away. She, she didn't. And I think other people in our family wanted that because my grandmother was in her late sixties when she took us on. And, and, you know, and the other part of it too, is that my grandmother obviously was of a different generation in which people, you know, historically with disabilities were institutionalized. Right. And so her, it was ingrained in me from a very young age. Edna's never going in a home and that like people will hurt Edna, you know, for better or for worse. I think my grandmother, you know, it was unfortunate that that was her experience and the world treated people with disabilities in that way. But because of that, I think she let fear override the possibility for help for my sister, such as speech therapy, physical therapy. Edna was kept home from school because my grandmother didn't trust people. I also think, oh, wow. I also, she went to school, but if Edna didn't, as Edna does, if Edna didn't feel like doing something, she won't do it. And so my grandmother would be like, I can't get Edna on the bus this morning. She's staying home with me, you know, which I understand to a certain extent because she was an elderly woman, like how much, you know, energy could she possibly have? But I think that she didn't let people in to help her. And that has been largely, I think, you know, as many of all of us, I think, go through, we try to unlearn some of the behaviors that we've been taught from our parents. And that's not to place blame on her, but I think it was her experience. And I have had to unlearn that. I have had to learn how to ask for help. I have had to learn how to trust people around Edna. I've had to accept after being in the situation of taking care of Edna day to day, that I was not capable of doing that on my own nor should I have to. And that's not to say I don't love Edna, but when I was doing that, I wasn't taking care of myself. And I wasn't, I I was in a deep depression when I first became Edna's guardian and I could barely get out of bed in the morning. And, you know, I was changing the sheets after she had a seizure and giving her a bath. And it's like, when you're doing that, how on earth are you supposed to have any energy left to take care of yourself? Or I was in survival mode, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I had to, I had to have help. And now I've found, and I, I, you know, I can go through this too, but now Edna does live in a small group home and she is incredibly, she's safe and I'm very involved in her life. I can go there anytime I want to. I do not have to announce when I'm coming, which is a huge, I think, shows how much they try, you know, I can trust them because mm-hmm. I think any facility that says you have to give us a heads up that you're coming, why, what are, what's going on over there that you don't want me to pop in. And I've also visited several places that were horrible and it was clear that people weren't being taken care of. UCP, so Edna lives in a home that's operated by the United Cerebral Palsy Foundation Edna does not have cerebral palsy. They serve all sorts of disabilities. Um, and uh, so she, they're amazing and wonderful. And some of the caregivers have been there. My favorite caregiver, not my favorite, but one of my favorites. I don't know if I can favorite them. <laughs> but the woman who I'm closest with has been there over 30 years. And wow. to have that sort of 
retention for staff is, is not common. Uh, and actually the way that I found them was, so part of the story that I haven't told is I became my sister's guardian when I was 20. She went to live with my aunt. Then she went to live with the caregiver. I was taking care of her. She would live with the caregiver during the week. Then she would come and be with my, my, me and my husband on the weekends. I'd take her back so I could be at work full time. Then when I decided to move to California and go to graduate school, she stayed with the caregiver. And then my final year of grad school, the caregiver also got breast cancer and then she died. And so that's oh. when I came, that's when Edna came to live with me full time in California. And you have to live in the state of California for 90 days before you get disability services. And so the regional center, as, as we've all, as we've discussed and we are brave together, uh, there are few people in the regional center. <laughs> You're, okay, this is my opinion. I did not have a good experience with the regional center. Um, I had to beg them and I went there in person and, you know, they say the, what is it? The squeaky, squeaky wheel. wheel. Yep, good yeah. yeah, so I was definitely the squeaky wheel um, with Edna. And so I was just very firm and said, I have to go back to school. I need help. So the regional center set me up with in-home supportive services, which is actually a really great, um, but I did have to supplement because the people who were sent to me through in-home supportive services were not necessary. Some of them were not reliable. And so I supplemented and I found a caregiver for $15 an hour and paid them. Um, so that was, that was, you know, in-home supportive services was helpful, but then what was most helpful to me, and I think it is because I'm a writer, is that I have spoken, I've been very vocal about my situation, um, which again was something I, I used to be very ashamed. I didn't want anyone to pity me. I didn't want people to sit here, oh, your parents have died. Oh, we feel so sorry for you. I didn't want any of that because I wanted to, you know, I just didn't want to be felt sorry for because I, I do not like to be told, no, you can't do something. <laughs> so I always, that's a good that. trait that you've had. Yes. Yes. And I, especially, you know, one of my first jobs I was in, one of my coworkers, very wealthy, her dad had said, you know, she was born into wealth and we were working the same job. And I was like, I'm really proud of myself that we have the same job. No one set me up with it, you know, like I've had help along the way. My high school drama teacher was amazing, Sue Butler. She sent me flowers when I graduated from grad school. Um, I've had amazing people in my life, but I've also learned how to not take no for an answer. And especially when I'm fighting for Edna, I'm much more vocal and I'm much more, it's interesting the way that it, when we're acting on behalf of someone else, the fight is a little bit, I, I will fight so much harder for my sister than I will for myself. And I've had to also teach myself, take care of yourself the way that you would for Edna. If Edna was in this situation, what would you do? So I've been very vocal. I wrote because the re because I was having difficulty with the regional center. And also there's a great organization, the Disability Rights, there, I'm forgetting the exact name of it, but it's a Disability Rights, um, their attorneys of California. And I got an attorney involved and she took the case on for free to basically mediate between myself and the regional center because the services were not coming through. That they told one of the support workers who I asked for a new support, this new caseworker, he was like, well, Edna wouldn't walk up the stairs because she's stubborn. And she can walk up the stairs, but she wouldn't. So I would be having to carry her up the stairs. And he said, well, why don't you just take her up and down the stairs in her wheelchair? And I was like, what <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, and I am sure the people who are the parents and caregivers who are listening, it's like 
no, you count, you encounter absurdity after absurdity and crazy thing after crazy thing that people will tell you. It's like a solve. So I got this attorney involved. She helped me. But then I wrote a blog that the, the title was my parents are dead and my sister is disabled on Tumblr. And I had been writing, it was a blog, it's still up there, E is for Edna. I had been writing about my experience of taking right. care of her. That's right. And when I wrote that, uh, it got shared a lot. I think there's like, it got sh- liked or whatever, 350,000 times or something. So it was quite a bit. And I was just like, no holds barred. I said what was going on. It's very, I, you know, I'm angry in it. And then also people, you know, that's another interesting thing is people don't like angry women. It's like, you can't be angry if you're speaking about something. And it's like, no, right. I'm pissed. No one's helping me. I'm alone. I'm being ignored. UCPLA, they somehow like, the blog got to them and they reached out to me on Twitter and they said, we read your story. We want to help you. And so that is how I found Edna's group home. And I had been being told for months, there are no group home openings. I remember one of the offerings I was given was, well, there's an, I, cause I called them one day and I was desperate. And I just said, this is an emergency. You need to help me. And they said, well, there's one opening, but it's in an all male facility. And I thought, Oh yeah, I'm gonna send my sister. My biggest, my biggest fear in the world is that you know, assault like disabled yes. people. Yes, of course. Are, you know, and I was like, I'm not sending my sister to an all male facility. This is not happening. And so, yeah. um, and uh, we we went to this home. There was two openings actually. So it's like, why wasn't the regional center telling me about this? Like they were telling me about openings up in Redwood City, but they weren't telling me about openings in you know, the Valley, which I still don't understand to this day, but I'm sure it has something to do with areas like school districts or something. Um, so I found her this home. She's lived there now for six years, you know, and it's been a, it's been a whole, that's a whole other story is the relationships that I've developed. I've been on the defense with my sister, my whole life, protecting her, fighting her, fighting for her, fighting her too sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's be real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I did not trust them and, um, I have, I, I, you know, I obviously trusted them enough to take care of her, but I remember the day that I took her there, she wouldn't get out of bed and I was so mad at her. And I was like, you're going to, you're going, I can't do this anymore. And I was telling her, and then I was packing her, putting her socks away in the drawer and I was just sobbing. And one of the caregivers came up behind me, Martha, she's, she's one of the managers. She was like, it'll be fine. It'll be okay. And I drove around the block. I left, I drove around the block and I stopped and I just sobbed in my car. I was like, I'm abandoning Edna and leaving her. And I called my best friend and I was like, she's like, you have to drive, go, you have to go. And I had made plans that night with my friends and I hadn't been out with my friends in a long time. And we went to the Hollywood bowl. And I think had I not had plans, had I not called my best friend, I probably would have gone back to the house and like gotten her just out of, out of guilt, out of fear. But I also could not do it anymore. I was hanging on by a thread. I mean, there were days that I was like, I, I'm just going to, we're going to drive over a cliff. We're going to be like Thelma and Louise and we're going to drive over a cliff because no one cares, you know, and, and my sense of humor has always, has gotten me through it too. You know, like yes. I, yes, you know, I, of course, but my grandma used to say that she used to say, when I die, I'm taking Edna with me. And it was like, what are you going to do, grandma? You're going to murder Edna. And then, <laughs> which is horrible. But then I have also read about parents who have been single parents who have been alone, taking care of an extremely just, you know, 
child with disabilities and that's what they have chosen that's that it is a dark place when you are alone and you have no help and i understand that place because i have been there and i have gotten out by talking to people and by just re refusing <laughs> to take no for an answer refusing to be ignored because it's wrong it's wrong to ignore people with disabilities it's wrong to ignore people who need help and who are alone how old were you when you took Edna to that home? Um, let's see, that was 2014. Um, 30, it was in August of 2014. So that was six years ago. So I was 29 to 30. Yeah, so even that's young. It's like, I'm still young, you know? like You are still so young, Janie. So fast forward to today and how are mm -hmm. you today? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we're all exhausted. We're at the time of this recording it is june early june and mm -hmm. um we're just amidst uh, a country ablaze and it's been um heartbreaking and maddening and everything like every every emotion yeah i mean i you know i told you you know when we were speaking earlier like i almost said no to doing the podcast at this time because it's like i don't think we should be talking about anything other than George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and what's happening in the country and the constant murder and horrific things that happen to black people in this country. And, um, you know, I have a friend who is very uh, active in saying black disabled lives matter. And that's also a part of the conversation because, you know, people with disabilities are, you know, we have to fight for services and we have, they're ignored and, you know, just like as we've seen with the pandemic, I mean, one of the first things that the state of Alabama did was to say that people with disabilities were not, would be last on the list to get ventilators. And people with disabilities, it's horrific. People with disabilities are not, their lives have less value in our country, not to me, not to you, but in the larger part of society have less value than people who can work, I think, again, people who yes. can, and that's not to say people with disabilities can't work because many of them can and are often denied employment. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. I have a yes. friend who can't, he can't have disability and his job at the same time. So oftentimes they're stuck in the in-between. Um, I'm feeling a lot of things, the anger and the sadness and the pain. And to be honest with you, when I, and this is a horrific image, but when I saw George Floyd's face pinned under the knee of that officer, I imagined Edna's face because I see her as someone who is ignored by society and who isn't treated fairly and who isn't valued. And I love her. And George Floyd had, has two daughters, you know, and, and one of them is six years old. And, you know, I lost my parents at a very young age. And, some, and then I saw a video of Gianna. And someone said, they were asking her a question. She said, my daddy's changed the world. And she's on the shoulder of, I think, his brother or something. Mm -hmm. and, I saw that. I saw that. Very yeah, powerful. And, and the burden that has been placed on that child to maintain composure and to say and to be positive in the light of losing the man that gave her life is just, uh, there are no words, I think. It's just horrific what's been done. And so, you know, I think it's important. Life has not, you know, as, you know, as a mom who, you know, we, we are taking care of people still. Life has not stopped because right. there is a pandemic. 
Right. And because there are protests and I am a hundred percent on the side of peaceful protesters. And, um, but that said, like life does not stop. I'm still the caregivers are the essential workers. They're still showing up to work. They're still showering people. Life goes on. But I think that we have to be aware of, of everyone's situation and of who is being disenfranchised and who is being oppressed and to stand up for them. I think we should take care of each other, regardless of the color of our skin or the abilities of our body. I don't know. It's human rights. And so I'm feeling a lot of things at this moment in time. And thank you for letting me talk about it. I agree. I agree. And I appreciate your heart. I appreciate you bringing this up because it, it, it cannot go unspoken right now. And yeah. I know this is a podcast for special needs families, but um, this is critical and it's important and we need to listen. We need to pay attention and we need to use our voice if we are equipped to use our voice or just listen and support. Right. Right. So thank you. What is something for the parents that are out there listening? What would you like to tell them, encourage them to talk about with the typical siblings in the family? Since this is part of a series, caring for the siblings in a special needs family, what do you want parents to know or do if they can do? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's hard. You know, I, I, my sister required more attention than I did when I was younger um, in a different way. But I don't feel, you know, my grandma and my aunt, they didn't, not to blame, this is just a fact, they didn't sit down with me and have conversations about how I was feeling. And I think that would have been nice to, to have that. But I also think my grandmother didn't have the tools to do that because she wasn't taught. And so I think you know, I think it's having a conversation with your kids, even if it's just, how are you feeling or letting them know that it's okay to be embarrassed sometimes or whatever the, whatever it is that they're feeling, um, is okay. But to have a discussion around it, if that's possible. And if you don't know how to have that conversation, educate yourself. I was listening to a podcast with Brene Brown and I know many of us love Brene Brown because, but there's a book I just ordered, um, permission to feel by a pediatrician and I'm forgetting his name. But it's about, okay, how do we, if we want to do this, but we don't know how, like, I think we just educate ourselves about having those conversations. One of my favorite episodes of Parenthood was called Let's Be Mad Together. And it was about, um, I'm forgetting her name. It was about her inability to fix Max's problem. And Max Mm -hmm. um, was on the spectrum and, and was having trouble at school. And they just sat together and they cried. And that's what that's the best, most powerful thing I think you can do for your child or for a friend or for anyone is to just be there, be present. It doesn't mean saying anything to make it better. So do you want to write a book someday? And I know you wrote a TV show for Edna, yeah. Edna stories. Yeah, I do. And I, I've been working on it for a long time. We sold the show. It's called E is for Edie. We sold the show um, in 2018. In August of 2019, they passed on it because the network wasn't going in that direction. But now we're taking it out again. We've now changed the title. It's now an out like a, a long. It's like a 40 minute versus 30 minutes because it's a dark comedy, and um, it's called Fuck Normal. <laughs> and so it's a little bit louder. We're hoping that will you know not. Yeah, so we're, I'm not giving up on that show. I, I think disability representation in the media is just uh, practically non-existent. And 
I think, you know, one in five Americans are disabled. There's over 40 million people providing unpaid care to a family member or friend. So yes, I'm not giving up on that television show. Um, hopefully we'll sell it this year. A major network was interested this summer. I had to pitch over Zoom to eight people and then they passed and their reasons were, were ridiculous, but they're going to miss out. <laughs> so and she also said, she, one of the executives said to me, you're going to win an award for the show one day. And I was like, yeah, I know. I know. Like, I, was like, I know that. <laughs> Why aren't you buying this show? You know? right. so it's like, I have to fight. I have to, you know, people are, if you haven't experienced uh, disability or caregiving, there's just, people don't understand. <laughs> so yes, I'm working on the TV show. I do have a book proposal. I might actually change the title. The book proposal was called, I bought new underwear for this. And it's about, <laughs> it's just about my horror stories of dating, but also being a young caregiver and trying to have my own life and take my sister to the DMV to get her state ID, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to do that. And I think that it's going to, I know that it's going to happen. It's just finding the right people who believe in it. I'll buy okay. like 25 books. <laughs> Thank you. We'll have them out at our summer party and our retreats. I would love that. I would so love keep that. going with that. Keep okay. going with the Thank TV you. series. Keep going with your book. We need your voice, Jeannie. If you could go back and tell your younger self, and it could be yesterday or it could be, you know, when you were 20 in your dorm room with Edna or somewhere in between, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself that, and this is something I'm, lear I'm learning now, so I'm very much telling myself this in the present moment, is that it's okay to, whatever you're feeling, it's okay to feel. I used to, I was told I was an angry kid and I was like, well, my parents died <laughs> and I'm mixing cocktails at home. So yeah, I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing, I, but I, yeah, it's serious. Yeah. Yeah. It's serious. And it's like, you know, why do we push away those feelings? We have to experience, we have to allow ourselves to feel valid in our, our emotion. If you're feeling it, it's true to you. Mm -hmm. It's inside of you. And you know, figure, you know, paying attention to those feelings, I would tell myself, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be happy. It's okay for me to be grateful today in this moment, even though there are horrific things happening in this world. It's okay for me to be grateful and to find moments of happiness. You know, it's okay to be embarrassed. I was embarrassed of Edna. And even when she, I took her to the Broad a couple of years ago and she was screaming in the line in the museum and I was embarrassed, but I was also <laughs> mad at the people who were staring at us, you know, like, and I think that, you know, a lot of part of what I've worked on in therapy is my black and white thinking, which I guess is, is very common for people who grow up in alcoholic households. You, it's a defense mechanism. Like you protect yourself. Is this good? Is this bad? And most of, if not all of every part of life is the in-between is yes, it can be both you can feel both mm -hmm. happy and sad. You can be both angry, you know, and grateful. Yes. Um, so th that's what I would tell myself and still tell myself and I'm learning <laughs> today. We really need your voice and I admire you so much. I wish I could hug you. I wish I could see you. I wish I could hug you too. And I just thank you. You're constantly going, going, going. And I just admire, <laughs> I admire that because that's hard to do. And I am not a mother, but you have three kids, right? Three? Yes. Yes. <laughs> three and, and the marriage and, you know, it's <laughs> a lot to manage. And now you do this amazing work that is so helpful. And I think it's important to know sometimes people, some 
you are touching lives and you will never hear from those lives. You know, like maybe you won't connect with them directly, but the fact that you are now doing this podcast, I think is just so wonderful and thank you. everything you do. Yeah. Thank you. I always say this and every time I say it, it's a hundred percent true, but it's a privilege and an honor. And I had to, I had yeah. to do something. I had to. And, mm-hmm. and here we are. <laughs> so Thank you for being a part of We Are Brave Together. Thank you for being on the show today and sharing your story and and your wit and your perspective and your wisdom beyond 36, 35. Your birthday's coming up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank so, you. So happy birthday, Jeannie. And thank you. Thank you for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today to the show. I hope you enjoyed our time together with amazing sister, caretaker, and talented writer, Jeannie Bergen. I'm a lover of words and quotes, and I leave this one for you that is a favorite one of Jeannie's. Your success and happiness lies in you. Resolve to keep happy, and your joy and you shall form an invincible host against difficulties. That is by Helen Keller. Friends, please subscribe to this podcast, leave a review and a rating and share with other moms who are seeking support and inspiration for life in the trenches of motherhood. Join our community by going to wearebravetogether.com and filling out the little pop-up form. And remember, as always, you are not alone.